You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as he does every week is uh, ITK Principal David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well and as a soccer fan, I'm uh, uh, thrilled to see us. <laughs> No need to laugh so early. I haven't even got to the punchline yet. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I'm just sort of, you know, winding people up. I mean, you know, thousands more people are now tuning in because you've mentioned football. So, <laughs> oh well, Australia beat uh, a pretty average Argentina side in the Olympics. But look, let's not dwell on that. We have the far more interesting, uh, enduring, and permanent topic of electricity uh, and the technology change. Uh, to talk about today, and I guess Giles, one of the issues that's uh, uh, that you and I have been thinking about and trying to bring uh, to to investigate is to understand how we can run control the electricity system as the thermal generation goes away and uh, I think we've got a great uh, guest today to talk about that. Well, we do. And it's a shame we can't talk more about the football, David. But um, as you say, we should be talking about energy. I guess it's sort of, um, it was interesting, Daniel Westerman from AEMA, and we talked about this last week, um, he raised, uh, created a few headlines in his first major speech talking about how he now expected um, Australia to, or at least he said, I think he said he needs, they now need to get the grid ready to be able to um, deal with 100% renewable penetration um, as early as 2025. Now, this is not 100% renewables over the over the life of the year or even a week or even a day, but it's just an instant penetration. But what that does tell us is that we're actually, you know, transitioning to a renewable grid at a far greater speed than um, many people thought and most people (laughs) prefer to accept because there's some people who just sort of still deny this. Um, Absolute nonsense, I think, was the response from one of the senior ministers. But it's really interesting because what Westerman's talking about is is basically this acceptance that we're actually now developing the technologies that will ultimately allow us to keep coal and gas um, out of the grid. And a lot of this is coming in a new way of thinking about the grid and different technologies and how to manage that. And because of that, I thought it would be absolutely great. What I'd like to welcome to discuss this is um, Beirut Barani, who's one of the leaders in the uh, grid um, grid transition studies at Monash University. Um, Beirut, welcome to the podcast. And please correct me on, on your title because I think I've got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for the introduction, Joel. I am Dr. Behrouz Bahrani. I'm a senior lecturer and the director of the Grid Innovation Hub at uh, Monash University. And at Monash, we actually uh, do work on various technologies which would enable this transition to a 100% renewable uh, feature grid, uh, including power electronic converters, including different uh, technologies around that, different uh, mechanisms for monitoring the grid, uh, protection of the grid. And I'm very happy to be with you today. Well, thank you very much. Look, I've got pretty close with your title. It's innovation yes. rather than transition. So that's I feel better. I feel I feel better about that. So tell me, um, 
What's happened then in the last couple of years that has gotten people more confident about this transition? Because, you know, we've probably mentioned before, 20 years ago, you talk about having more than a 10% um, penetration of wind and solar and the world would come to an end. And even our own energy minister said just a couple of years ago, too much wind and solar will cause the deindustrialization of the Australian economy. <laughs> but um, now we kind of... Uh, so the new technologies that we've been talking about, because I hear this quite... You know, I see this in discussions in LinkedIn from that power engineers. All of a sudden, they've become much more optimistic, much more confident about this transition. Tell, tell us what's been happening. Well, I guess we have been uh, very um, lucky to have semiconductor technology, I would say, and the advances in the semiconductor technology, because semiconductor technology, power semiconductors in particular, uh, have enabled having high power converters and different technologies around uh, power electronic converters are enabling this transition. Maybe 20 years ago, if you were talking about a, a generator in the grid, which would be generating around a gigawatt, everybody would say, no, nah, it's just not possible. We can't do it with power uh, electronic converters, but this is now a reality. We can very easily have uh, farms, uh, solar farms, uh, wind farms, which are around that uh, power uh, scale, like one, one gigawatt, two gigawatt, is, is just a reality today. So we are, I would say we are very much, um, you know, indebted to uh, power electronic converters. That's the main um, enabler technology here. Of course, there's so many other technologies around this, but, but power uh, semiconductor uh, industry has helped us significantly to, to reach the point that we are today. Now, the issues that we've got in the grid today and then what we need to be uh, resolving in coming years is not so much about the hardware is more about the control of these power electronic converters to make this transition to a hundred percent renewable and of course uh, power systems are different uh, the australian power system in particular is a unique power system that we've got and this power system of course is very uh, skinny very long and um, well in some um, you know regions it's not super strong so this means challenges for power electronic converters because well depending on how you control the power electronic converter that you're using for grid integration you might have issues in certain areas of the grid and in particular in areas that you don't have a lot of system strengths. Um, well, we could go to the details of this, but I guess this uh, answers the first part of the question. Yeah, it does. And I think also the, um, uh, the batteries have also had a bit of a role there because they can provide the Absolutely. instantaneous power coupled with, with the power Absolutely. electronics. And I always, think, I always think of it in terms of, because uh, I play guitar, in terms of the way uh, uh, guitar amp simps can can emulate valve amps but it's probably not a perfect analogy you talked about the hardware and right. uh, uh and then you talk about control and i guess uh you know putting my science fiction hat on uh, can you talk a little bit about the i imagine a world where there are lots and lots of power electronic inverters out there and a, a mix of grid following and grid forming ones there are already millions of grid following inverters at the residential level. And I imagine we can have all these grid forming inverters floating around the place. Uh, and somehow there's some super piece of software. I mean, can you talk about the interaction, I guess, of the software and the hardware and, and conceptually the control scheme uh, that would work? Does it 
do we have a centralized top-down scheme or do we have lots of little sort of uh, conceptually autonomous microgrids that are sometimes part of the bigger grid and sometimes running the show on their own? I just, you know. Yes. Um, well, uh, spot on. Uh, we do have, well, uh, thank you for actually uh, talking about grid forming and grid following uh, control. Um, so power converters, first of all, just to, to make it clear, grid forming and grid following inverters, uh, in terms of hardware, they are almost identical. There's there's no difference. Of course, sometimes you might need to, um, you know, play a little bit with the filter that you put in front of your grid forming inverters and that there's a capacitor, which is important there. But typically you do have that capacitor and grid following inverter. So, low, so in terms of um, the hardware, grid forming and grid following are identical. Now, what actually um, changes from grid following to grid forming is that in a grid following inverter, as the term following suggests, the uh, inverter would follow the grid voltage, meaning that it looks at the grid voltage at the point that it is connected to, and it follows that grid, that, that grid voltage. So it extracts the phase angle of the grid at the, at the point it is connected to the grid. And using that phase angle, it actually sorts out its uh, control strategy and starts injecting power to the grid. So you need to have that uh, voltage there. You need to actually be uh, locked into that voltage. You need to extract its phase angle for your system to operate. And a unit that uh, does this synchronization or, or this locking action to the grid is called phase locked loop, PLL. And PLL, uh, to put in context, is actually the main unit that uh, typically would give you difficulties when you're operating in a very weak grid. So when you're operating in a grid, for example, in certain areas, um, let's say in Victoria, with uh, the Westmire region or northern Queensland, where you don't have a lot of system strengths, this PLL potentially could fail and, and your system might not be stable, your grid following inverter. Now, the way grid forming inverters solve this problem is by actually forming a voltage at the point of connection instead of locking into whatever voltage is there. And in particular, when you look at it uh, in the context of a weak grid, you can form that voltage at the point of connection pretty easily with your grid forming inverters, and you do not need a voltage there. You do not need a PLL, which is actually which potentially could be unstable in a weak grid so you you actually eliminate that um, unstable bit from your grid following inverter and you change the way you control uh, the uh, grid forming inverter so that that that's how a grid forming inverter actually is uh, better in terms of um, stability in particular in problematic areas now to to go back to your question about um, how this mix would be you know given the fact that um, the cost of both wind and solar farms are dramatically decreasing and it's very cost um, effective to go to huge uh, farms uh, as we already have a lot of gigantic farms um, in the grid. My understanding is that in 10 years, 20 years from now, we will be having gigantic uh, farms. We will be having uh, gigantic solar and wind farms, and they would be actually giving us the majority of the energy that we require. So it means that it wouldn't really be um, islands. This is, um, but but I could be wrong, and and in 20 years we, it might be very different. But but my feeling is that the way we are doing it at the moment, and the way things can happen, in particular with the declining price of solar and wind farms and also batteries, large scale batteries is another important piece. Uh, we potentially could have uh, 
fully renewable grids with huge farms um, around the country. So you could, for example, um, imagine what we had 40, 50 years ago. We had only uh, gigantic synchronous generators. So potentially they, there could be gigantic wind farms in the grid. And potentially the majority of the energy that we would require would come from those farms. Of course, we would have residential solar. Of course, we would have smaller microgrids. But uh, I believe the uh, the main uh, part of the grid will be uh, powered by uh, large-scale solar and wind. Like I said, uh, residential PV will be always there, and it's actually good to have it. Um, but there are certain issues with uh, having millions of inverters, of course, in the grid. And if you, um, well, uh, already we have some issues with uh, these grid following inverters, millions of them in the residential uh, area, because you know you won't have a lot of control over them. They are potentially um, out of uh, your reach as an operator, so it's uh, it's it's not extremely easy to uh, to coordinate all of them. But potentially another uh, concept that uh, we are developing at the moment in industry is that virtual power plant using so many of these inverters to work in harmony uh, to also uh, be seen as a large um, entity of uh, generator so you can you can for example um, have i don't know maybe uh, thousands and tens of thousands of these inverters working in harmony and that would potentially be uh, seen as a a generator as well um, so the there are so many possibilities, let's put it this way, but I think um, large-scale wind and solar will be dominant in, in future years. Sure, sure, sure. But let's, uh, and, uh, on the other hand, at the moment, I just want to point out that the fastest uh, growth in megawatts of capacity is actually in rooftop uh, behind at the, uh, the moment. So, so, and as you point out, there are lots of uh, inverters at the rooftop level but the issue is that they haven't been designed, I suppose, uh, with enough capability to be the system control. But can you talk about a little bit about the actual structure of the topology of, of a network that is very largely inverter based? And then after that, uh, uh, well, Giles, will ha then I'll hand back to Giles, but, <laughs> but let's yeah. talk about topology. It's all good, Dave. No, you keep yeah. on going. It's all good. Yeah. yeah that, well, uh, are you talking first about uh, transmission or distribution or the whole system? What exactly well, are we? Let's talk at the whole system and then right. work, work our way down. So right. we've got these right. big wind and solar farms, and do they each have, uh, you know, uh, a grid following inverter or a grid forming inverter? Right. And if two of them are next to grid forming inverters, how do they work out which ones right. actually setting the system frequency and right. all that sort of stuff? Yes. Well, first, okay, that, that's actually a good starting point. Um, for the moment, the majority of wind and solar farms that we've got, they're working in the grid following mode, most of them. Uh, we do have some grid forming inverters in the grid, but uh, most of them, I guess all of them, are uh, supplied by a battery, uh, so you could call them grid-forming batteries in the in the grid. Now, how can they operate next to each other? Imagine that you've got a solar farm, a wind farm in a weak part of the grid. Let's say, in particular, I'm, I'm focusing on weak parts of the grid because if you've got a strong grid in place, you don't have any issues really. You can have these um, grid-following inverters operating them. Uh, without any problems. But as soon as you go to weaker parts of the grid, and if you want to have a solar farm there, which is grid following, you could run into problems like what I said, the PLL, the that synchronization unit could fail, you could have issues. Now, if you add a grid forming inverter there, it actually solves your problem. 
So we have shown in some of our studies that if you have a grid following inverter installed in a, in a weak part of the grid, and let's say a fault happens after a contingency in the system, your solar farm, your wind farm might not be able to recover. It might go into an unstable mode or an oscillatory mode. Now, as soon as you add a grid forming inverter there, the grid forming inverter can increase the strength of the system and it can help your grid following inverter to actually come back to the uh, to your network uh, without any problem after fault. So this means that having a grid forming inverter is helping our system to actually integrate more renewable in parts of the grid which are weak, which we previously wouldn't be able to add many uh, grid following inverters, and it's actually helping a lot. Now, how can it help? The way it helps is as if you're putting a synchronous generator. How can we do that? Well, the way actually these grid forming inverters are working is that they're essentially mimicking the performance of a synchronous generator. How can we do that? Well, look at an inverter, a grid forming inverter, as a controllable voltage source. In essence, when you look at a synchronous generator, a synchronous generator is also a controllable voltage source, right? It's, just, it's, it's essentially creating a voltage and a frequency for you. And then based on its control strategies, it will um, dispatch the power uh, set point that you would like. This is exactly what we do with grid forming inverters. We exactly actually mimic the dynamics of a synchronous generator. And that's why sometimes grid forming inverters are called virtual synchronous generators. Virtual synchronous generators are a a variant and probably the most uh, popular variant of grid forming inverters that can actually give you the very exact performance that a, a synchronous generator is giving you. So in a synchronous generator, you've got a, a damping, you've got a, a moment of inertia. You can exactly uh, mimic all of these in the control strategy of your grid forming inverter. And even better than a synchronous generator, because in a synchronous generator, you design it, you put it there. You can't change it later on. If you put a synchronous generator in the system, you're limited to whatever you've installed. But when you put a grid forming inverter, because you can control or it can change the parameters of the control the moment of inertia in a, in a grid forming inverter is no longer a physical uh, concept, but it's, it's a control concept, but it does have the same impact. So it means that you're essentially putting a synchronous generator into the system, but more flexible. And just one point here before uh, I move on, what we've got in the system at the moment that we call it virtual synchronous generator, of course, yes, it is It is giving us more or less the performance that a synchronous generator is giving us, but that's not the extent of its capabilities. We can do a lot more with grid forming inverters. So far, we have been kind of limiting ourselves to what a synchronous generator can give us because we, 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 we have had so many synchronous generators in the grid and those synchronous generators have been doing well so far. And we thought, okay, let's actually mimic that same exact performance for, for us to, to be able to actually go through this transition that we're going from synchronous generators to inverters. But inverters are more flexible. Inverters can do a lot more than a, a virtual synchronous generator. Of course, that's good enough already. That is helping us quite a lot in terms of integrating more grid following inverters into the grid. But, but absolutely, there is no reason to only stick to this virtual synchronous generator. We can do um, a lot more here. Good. I, I, so I, 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 I'm very conscious that there's a, a lot to cover and, yes. and a, a limited amount of time. I just wanted to address a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about uh, the West Australian 
uh, off-grid market, or which may soon be a separate grid yes. in, the, in the mining sector. Yes. And one of the issues with running it all off inverters uh-huh. was this issue of uh, fault current, I think, right. and that inverters can't provide as much fault current as, as a synchronous condenser. Correct. But I've seen a suggestion that if you design the network properly, you may not need as much fault current. Uh... Um, correct. Well, actually, thank you so much for bringing this. I was actually going to uh, to talk about that as well. Um, you're spot on. You know, that's that's one limitation that uh, that's probably the only limitation that a grid forming inverter might have when you compare it with the synchronous generator, and that is fault current because. Um, you know, uh, a synchronous generator can go to five, six per unit uh, of its rated current when it, there is a fault happening into the network. And the good point about having this fault current is that it can clear the fault quickly for you, and then your um, protection system can operate, and you know it can protect your system. That's not really the case in a grid, at least in current grid forming inverters that we've got, because what we are having at the moment, we design them for a given capacity. Maybe we we actually um, over designed them a tiny bit. For example, if it's supposed to operate at I don't know 10 megawatt, uh, 10 MVA, we we might have a rated power of I don't know a 12 or maybe 13 MVA and 20, 30%, sometimes 50%. And I've seen in certain uh, cases, 100% um, um, capacity on top of the rated. But I haven't seen anything five or six. But it doesn't mean that it is not possible. It is actually possible. You can have an inverter and you design it for, I don't know, 50 MVA. So it can withstand up to 50 MVA, but normal operation could be 10 MVA. Of course, you, this is an overkill for the most, for most of the time in the system. But my point here is that technically it is possible. So if it is, if it is really of a concern and if there is no other way, of course, it is possible to have this. Now, it, it comes to the to the cost of this, that um, what would be the cost and how much money you're actually spending here. Um, and that, that's actually a valid question uh, because it would be then an overkill for most situations. But admittedly, that's one advantage that a synchronous generator has, and that's full current. Now, one way around this is reshaping and redesigning and rethinking how we are protecting our system. And that's actually still a, a, an open research question. And there are so many projects going on around the world in different universities I, around the world and different R&Ds around the world that how we can actually rethink and reshape uh, the uh, protection schemes of grid forming inverters um, or, or, or a, a system which is dominated by inverters so that we wouldn't require really five or six per unit um, when we have, have a fault to clear that or to, to make sure that the protection system is operating. Um, and yeah, that, yes. that's, that's so, really... So we could redesign the system uh, and, and, and I guess, I mean, in, in my mind, knowing nothing, I'm a financial analyst, this would happen perhaps with more smaller units, more evenly spaced across the network, uh, uh, you know, in a kind of more distributed way. Uh, but am I... Or, 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 or is, is that? Let, let me just move on to a different sort of question, which is transitioning yes. uh, uh, at the moment. So, this is kind of complex question in that we've got markets and rules designed for one system, and we're moving to another system uh, where, 
um, is there any issue really in just how do we decide how many more things needed to go, you know, gadgets need to go onto the system and, and when they go on? Well, to be very honest with you, because this is a pretty slow transition when you look at it, I mean, it's not happening overnight. Uh, it's it's pretty difficult to predict what exactly would happen because um, when we look at what has happened over the last 20 years, you can see that so many things have happened um, to, to actually to bring us to the point we are today. Um, in terms of transition, uh, what I can say here is that the transition to a a 100% grid and the transition to a grid which is close to 100% is very different. I, you know, and, and my thinking is that we probably won't reach a grid which is 100% inverter based anytime soon for different reasons. And one reason is that we already uh, fairly recently um, have installed uh, synchronous machines in the system in, in the form of Syncon, for example. Uh, we do have still some um, synchronous generators uh, which will be operating in the grid for quite a while. We've got hydropower. So uh, we probably won't reach a 100% inverter-based system um, anytime soon. Um, but, but reaching 100% uh, penetration of renewable energy, and don't get me wrong, because renewable does not necessarily have to be inverted or different types that potentially could be there. Um, Reaching that point, I guess, uh, won't be within reach in, in, in five to 10 years. I Probably that would happen in 30, 40 years uh, from now. Um, but there are a lot of things in addition to inverters and control that need to come into, into the uh, mix. And that is different types of markets, for example, that we probably require. Uh, there has been some uh, discussions around how should we have a market for, for example, uh, inertia in the system. There's some... Um, um, the certain research is actually being conducted on that part or different types of market that we already have in the system, like um, a frequency market, different types of ancillary markets. All of them need to be uh, reshaped and resynced. how we actually we, we can um, integrate more renewables by by actually providing enough incentives for different services to be there. Um, but to be very honest, uh, because of the fast changing nature of um, the whole power system and a lot of technologies are coming along, a lot of things are changing. It's difficult to predict that uh, what's going to happen. But my thinking is that we will have uh, these uh, the current services that we've got in place already will help us to actually reach the, the point that we want to reach in, in 10, 20 years. But most of them needs to be um, evolved. Most of them need to be uh, reshaped. New market um, you know, mechanisms should come into play. And uh, sure. Yeah, can, I, can I just ask? Oh, sorry. One last question from me. And this is just about modeling and software. Uh, to what extent do you think we can model all this out properly? Uh, from what I understand, we do a lot of stuff these days with, in something called Power System CAD, PSCAD, yep. uh, uh, which is supposed to be wonderful, uh, I guess, but in practice it doesn't seem that it always exactly mimics the real world even though it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just wonder... Uh, I guess my question is, 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 is that the right way to go looking forward or, or can we sort of develop more <laughs> generic rules about what will work and what won't work so yes. that we don't need to do so much 
modeling yeah. all the time because every yes. time there's a new gadget gets added onto the system and there's going to be you know lots and lots and lots of new uh, wind and solar farms added i mean uh, there's a long list of them yes and if we've got to go through really months and months of modeling every time it, it, it's, it's a bit of a bottleneck yep. Yeah. Now, first of all, I regarding the uh, PSCAT software that is being used. Well, it has actually tremendously helped us. Uh, in particular, in Australia, the Australian energy market operator AMO has done a fantastic job in putting together this uh, this model of the whole NEM in PSCAT, and that's extremely useful. Previously, we were relying on other uh, software such as uh, PSSE, for example, which is not as well. If I want to go to the details, PSSE is an RMS tool, uh, and PSCAT is an EMT tool. And EMT tools can give you much more details about a subsequent phenomena happening in in a grid. So, and you do require them with uh, inverters in the grid. So that's the right way to go. That's the right way to actually uh, to go towards EMT analysis in in a power system to understand what's happening with inverters and that that's the right choice to do and it's although it is difficult although it is actually very much time consuming but it actually tells you things that you cannot really understand with any other tool at the moment there are certain other um, methodologies that you potentially could use to give you some insight but by far EMT analysis when it comes to inverters is the is the most appropriate way to go and at the moment just to add to the context AMO is is actually developing a a system called National Energy Simulator and trying to uh, develop a digital twin of uh, the whole NEM, which is much faster than PSCAD in terms of simulation time. Because one limitation that you mentioned with PSCAD is that it takes time to simulate the system. So if you want to simulate, I don't know, I, for I, 10 seconds in your system, it might take you 30 uh, minutes, one hour to simulate. That's a lot of time. And then AMO is developing this new platform, which which would be around three times slower than real time. So this is just fantastic. So if you have the whole system, if you can see the whole system in EMT, and EMT means that you can see, you can capture all those details of inverters in, in almost real time. Three times uh, slower than real time is almost real time, I would say. This is a game changer and it can help us actually significantly, although it's an enormous effort. And and um, well, I guess it is it is very well within reach. So so just to sum up, I guess we do require these uh, sorts of analysis. We do require these um, types of uh, software such as uh, PSCAD and 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 what AMO is doing with this National Energy Simulator platform. We do require them. They will help us significantly, and that's the way to go. Um, although I totally appreciate that this is not an easy task. This is not uh, very straightforward. It takes a lot of time, a lot of actually um, uh, manpower as well. So you, you need to have uh, an army of people actually to, to support the whole industry to make sure that this is happening. And this is very difficult, but that's the right way to go. So can I get just back to what, what I, was, I was quite interested in you talking about the pace of the transition. So what you seem to be saying is that the technologies are there probably to do it straight away if that was at all possible. But one of the reasons that we have to ask inverters more or less to um, um, behave like um, their synchronous brothers is because of the existing market rules and also because there's so much legacy assets. And I'm just wondering, is that the big challenge? Is just getting that transition? There's, it's, I mean, I've kind of compared it from sort of you know analog to digital, but that must be very hard to do. If that's the right, if that's the right, mm. um, if that's no, the right, of. 
Yes, kind of. kind of. Yes, but 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 with having an essential service that you can't disrupt at the same time. Exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah. That's the biggest problem that we've got. Look, you know, we've got an essential service that you cannot disrupt. It has to be there. It has to be reliable. It has to be ninety nine point ninety nine nine percent reliable mm. all the time. And it, and as soon as there is one small blackout, so this system is there. It's always working, and then it is not there for one hour, and then everybody would be telling you, yeah. "Oh, what have you done? Why we don't have electricity?" So, so that that's the biggest challenge here. Of course, we do have all, uh, well, not all, but almost everything that it takes to do this transition. But one thing is this, that exactly you, it's, it's, it has to be always there. It has to be reliable. And then we can't really yeah. have it disrupted. That's one thing. The other thing is that, well, we have spent billions of dollars on the existing infrastructure. So changing this extremely monstrous, huge system and transitioning into a fully inverter-based system, of course, takes time. I would say that we are we are we are doing it in well we're doing it pretty good. Of course, you can always do better, but we should appreciate that this takes time. I mean, it's not something that will happen over mm. time. In particular, this monstrous system that we've got. And but, if, it's not, yep. but if you're doing it from the start, could you actually do it from the start? Then, sort of, you know, if you, if you didn't have to worry about existing market rules, if you didn't have to huh? worry about legacy assets, could you actually using these grid forming inverters and all the other technologies actually create a system which was 100% renewable and perfectly reliable? And what would that invite you to be able to do? over and above um, what they're doing in the, in the current system. Ah, well, if we were going to actually design it from the scratch, first of all, we would with the current technology, we would design it in DC. We wouldn't right. go for AC at all. There's no reason to go for AC anymore. You know, previously, uh, we had designed our system AC because we, we didn't have uh, high-power DC-DC converters. We did have uh, transformers, though, and transformers could enable us to go to high-power AC, to high-voltage AC. And the reason to going, for going to high-voltage is that you would have much less loss in the system. That's why we went to AC. If we were going to actually redesign the whole system from the scratch with the current technology, we probably would, would opt for a fully DC system. Look at your house, for example. How many AC loads do you have? Most of the loads that we've got actually in our houses or everywhere, most of our loads are DC. Most of them are DC. And even if some of them would require AC, you can always go at the point of connection to a DC grid. You can convert that DC to AC for those a few loads that you might have, which are AC. But but I guess, uh, well, that that's not possible anymore, of course. I mean, we are stuck with the system that we've got. It is AC. We can't really ch change everything to DC just yet. It might happen in, in many years from now, but just Yet, it is actually very difficult to go to a, a fully DC system simply because of the legacy system that we've got. Um, so, yeah, if, if I was going to redesign, I would go for DC. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Beruz, um, it's um, it's been fascinating talking to you, and um, it um, it'd be love to have a um, sh share a long lunch or a long dinner and talk even more about it. But, sure, um, I would be happy. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, I think we've covered kind of the main points, and um, look, there's probably listeners out there who are probably think, yeah, but what about this? What about that? Yeah. And um, but um, look, yeah, I that, think, yeah, this yeah. is actually this is a topic that you can talk about it for for actually many hours. Just one thing that I wanted to mention, I I was extremely happy to see this announcement from Daniel Westerman of IEMA about going to this hundred uh, percent renewable. Because even if it is not 
um, achieved in, in five years. But having and setting this goal is amazing. This is just fantastic because this will give us a fantastic push and definitely will help us to actually reach that point much faster. And thank you uh, so much to uh, Amo and, and Daniel for, for actually setting this ambitious goal. This is just phenomenal. Hmm. A really, really quite a game changer in thinking it is. and planning it is. mentality. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Well, look, that's great to hear. Beirut, before we let you go, um, I just want to sort of quickly wrap up with David about, um, I don't know whether there is any news of the week that we need to cover off on. Um, there's been a big Bloomberg New Energy Outlook report, which probably tells us most of what we know. We need rapidly accelerate the amount of um, um, zero yes, emission technologies into the grid. Nothing um, new about that. I think the, for me, the big news this week uh, was the Japan news announcing their... Um, uh, basic energy plan or for the next five years, which is uh, being put forward by uh, uh, the Japanese main Japanese economic bureauc bureaucratic agency, which calls for, I think, uh, renewables to make up 38%, I think it is, of the power system by 2030. And in particular, it envisages a much lower role for gas than uh, was previously envisaged as as well as a lower role for coal. And uh, that is obviously a threat to Australia's uh, balance of trade because Japan is our main coal and gas customer, as we've discussed a couple of times already. And I guess also perhaps an opportunity uh, to provide uh, Japan with some other form of energy uh, to partly replace some of that uh, gas or coal. But I think in the end, we, Australia will lose some market share out of that because what, renewable energy tends to be more self-sufficient for every country in the world. Uh, so mm. that, that's one important piece of news. Uh, yeah. Yes, and in that context, it was interesting to note that the West Australian government with their infrastructure um, strategy paper, um, actually quite interesting, um, came out this week. One was the admission that basically the recent whole system plan didn't actually go far enough, didn't sort of deep delve deep enough into the zero emissions target and how to get there on the lowest cost um, um, scenario. And um, that sort of reflects a lot of the criticism and frustration that from um, energy people over in that state. But also they also recognise this opportunity and the shifting, the shifting sands, as you say, it's been brought out by Japan, um, wanting more renewables and less fossil fuels. And so WA is getting quite serious about trying to replicate its LNG industry and its share of the global energy market, but in renewable hydrogen. Um, still a long way to go, obviously, in all of that, but early planning will help them get a share of the market because there's a fair bit of um, competition out there. Um, that's should also note Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, no, that's right, Giles. And then the other thing is, of course, that uh, anyone who actually acts in the market will understand is that power prices have continued to go uh, absolutely ballistic uh, over, the, over the last uh, few weeks, uh, as has gas prices in Australia. Um, we also had the Queensland Smart Energy uh, uh, presentations this week, and it's interesting to hear, since the minister has changed in Queensland, it was interesting to hear what his priorities were. And in a way, I think they're very appropriate, which is ensuring that energy intensive industry in Queensland uh, can take advantage of the low cost renewable energy that resource that exists there uh, and to focus on, on, the, on the GDP impacts of the industry rather than the or downstream industry, the users of the energy rather than the energy itself. You know, in the end, electricity is only an enabling bit for the for the services that that actually use it so 
on the other hand, it'd be nice to actually see the support. And then we also heard about uh, from Joe O'Brien about the copper string project, which I, I kind of think is a good idea conceptually to put more transmission in place to a big resource and end up replacing gas at, at Mount Isa. But the thing he never got round to talking about was who's going to pay for it. And that, that requires a revenue contract uh, with Glencore, the operator of Mount Isa, and there hasn't been a word uh, about that. And it faces competition, that copper string project, from the fact that APA, the owner of the gas generators there, have actually spent a lot of money over the past uh, 18 months upgrading their gas generators to make them, I guess, more reliable. Mm, interesting stuff. Um, yes, no, fascinating wind in Queensland, um, looking at using wind and solar and renewables to cheaper source of power to guarantee the future of the industry. Who would ever have thought of such a thing? Um, David, thank you once again. Beirut, thank you very much for joining the um, podcast. Um, I did enjoy the discussion and um, I appreciate your efforts to try and um, make it more broadly understandable for the general population and already some of the people out there. But um, look forward to more research. Um, um, in the area. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Fantastic. Thank yeah. you. Thank Fantastic. You. And look, we're, we're looking forward to having a special guest next week um, along the same lines, um, but um, better not sort of uh, blow our trumpet yet, just in case it doesn't come off. But um, we look forward to that next week. David, thank you very much. Thank you to our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon. Thank to everyone out there for listening. Um, keep strong, keep safe in the lockdowns happening in so many different places, part of. Australia and we'll be back again in a week's time. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.